Last week, if you joined us, you'll remember that I told a quick story about how my son and I like to look online at a website called Zillow, which um, shows all sorts of houses all over the world. So you can just pick the city that you want to look at and you can find like the most expensive house that you can find, you know, $20 million mansion overlooking the bay in San Francisco or you know, a, a, a Midwestern gem that is 40 years old and is, you know, 25,000 square feet or whatever it is. Love looking at the pictures of them. We laugh. And uh, most of the time, the reason we do it is because we try to put ourselves in the situation of the person who lives there. And we tell each other, imagine what it would be like if we actually had that house, I mean, what would your life look like? How amazing would it be to have a pool like that that has three waterfalls in it and tunnels everywhere and four slides for the kids to go down? Can you imagine having a hot tub that big? Can you imagine having a hot tub? We love to put ourselves in that situation and ask the question of what would it be like. I still do that, not just when I'm looking online at houses. Uh, my wife and I love to go into Vancouver and we ride our bikes on the several different, many different trails that are in there. And uh, you'll know, of course, if you ride the trails around Vancouver, eventually you'll end in places like Coal Harbor, where cars pass you that are very, very nice. Uh, just last week, we were passed by two Lamborghinis right in a row. And uh, as we were sitting at the stoplight and they were right next to us, I was wondering what would it be like to own a Lamborghini and have everybody look at you whenever it is that you drive by. You know, I'm sure that's why you get a Lamborghini is so that everybody can, can look at you. But how fantastic it would it be to be able to push down the, the pedal and go from whatever, zero to 100 kilometers an hour in three seconds. I would do that everywhere I went. I'd go from zero to 100, and then I'd just slow down to the speed. Zero to 50, as fast as I can, and then slow down to the speed limit. What would it be like to own something like that? I think that's why, um, that's why shows like, um, when I was a kid in the 1980s, there was a show called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with I'm Robin Leach. <laughs> He was, uh, a, I think, British or Australian guy, and he would go around to all the wealthy people in the world and show their yachts and their cars and their homes just to make all of us feel like, wow, what would that, what would that be like? I mean, nowadays, uh, they, of course, do that on MTV uh, with a show called Cribs, where they go into all of the different uh, houses of wealthy people and they show how some of these some of these you know rappers have entire rooms of air jordans and things like that and what would it be like to have a closet that was only dedicated to your shoes what would it be like to have a pair of air jordans whatever the message that we get from all of that kind of stuff though is is pretty straightforward and it's a message that we in the in the more north american culture don't even need to uh to think about much. It's just something we absorb and we believe without question. One of our great North American cultural beliefs is this. True happiness is found in the accumulation and the use of nice things. That if you want to be truly happy, you will get as much as you can and you will use as many uh, good upgraded things as you possibly can because he who ends with the most toys wins. 
And that's the value that we have everywhere. It's what we find in every commercial that we hear. You need to have one of these because the one you have is not, not actually that great. And we rarely ask the question that we ought to ask, which is, is it true that our chase for more will result in greater joy? Kohelet, which is the Hebrew name for teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, this teacher, this preacher, he has an answer. And it's in, it's in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 to 20, where he focuses in on wealth. And he tries to ask the question, right, what do we do with our desire for wealth? Is it good? What is the use of wealth? Is it all bad or is, is it, what is it? So in this passage, he's going to, he's going to describe two things. First, the, the dangers uh, of wealth. And secondly, the, the delights of wealth. Wealth can be dangerous first and wealth can be delightful. So those are the headings that I want to study this under in the next couple minutes. Before we do that, though, I just need to tell you that normally um, we use the New International Version whenever we're preaching here. And it's largely because it's a really readable Bible. Uh, it's a great translation of Scripture, uh, along with others like the English Standard Version, the ESV, and the, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. They're all, they're all great. But... There is a translation that is really helpful in this passage to really convey the meaning of the author. And so I'm using that today. It's called the New English Translation. You can find it online. It's great. It's got little translation notes in it and things like that. And so that's what I'll be using, the New English Translation, because it's really quite descriptive. And the translation is, uh, in my opinion, quite a bit better than the New International Version, okay? So here we go. The first of the headings, wealth can be dangerous. Verse 10 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So the one who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. This also is futile. Now, we got to start at the beginning and understand who he's talking about. He says the one who loves Money. He's not talking about people who just think that money is useful or desirable. It's not somebody who thinks, ah, I wish I could have, you know, a little bit more of my paycheck, or uh, I'm going to take this other job because it pays a little bit more. And that's not necessarily the person he's talking about here. What he's, the person he's talking about is the person who loves money. And that, that Hebrew word for love is used in lots of other contexts in the Old Testament to talk about, like, genuine devotion and commitment to a thing or another. So uh, when God calls Abram to sacrifice his son on the altar on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, he says, Abram, I want you to take Isaac, the son you love, and sacrifice him up on the altar. Uh, Jacob loved Rachel. Isaac loved Rebekah. So you see that? It's, it's like a love for a father for his child or a love for a husband for his wife. Like that kind of true, genuine devotion that you have. So the person who loves money is the person who has a genuine devotion to money. They, they place their hope in money. It is going to provide for them what they want in life. If you ask them, what's going to make you happy? They would say, just a little bit more. What's going to make you happy? A Lamborghini. What's going to make you happy? Lifestyles of the rich and famous. What's going to make you happy? 
a crib like that. So the one who loves money is never satisfied with his money, or in the second phrase, uh, will never be satisfied with his income. In other words, it's, it's never quite enough. There's always an upgrade that you can have. The people who love money are always scanning the horizon and thinking to themselves whenever they're confronted with, uh, you know, a, an adv advertisement or uh, they see a billboard on the side of, of the road that advertises a new widget, a new thing. They're thinking, oh, I got to have that. And even if the thing that they have is amazing, they still want, they still want the next one. I mean, we experience this all the time. Uh, I don't know if you saw and seen this recently, but like uh, I, I have an iPhone 11, which is way more than four that I used to have. So I have an iPhone 11. Well, they just came out with an iPhone 12 when I got the 11. And of course I was immediately thinking, oh, 12 would be better because it has all these other cool aspects. But I saw on TV the other day that Samsung has this new phone that is a flip phone like we used to have years ago it's a flip phone that opens up and it becomes like a full screen. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, that's what I need. I need, why do I need it? I don't know. <laughs> I just, how cool would it be to have a flip phone that you, it comes out and it's like still the full kind of iPhone, Samsung Galaxy sort of thing, but then you could close it and put it in your pocket. It doesn't take as much space up. Oh, that would be amazing. And of course, after they do that, they're gonna make a phone that floats or or whatever. And somebody who loves money wants that stuff. Every time there's a new upgrade, they're like, well, I, I got to have it. You know, they buy a car. I bought a car just a couple of years ago. And of course, a newer model got a phone call from the dealer uh, and said, hey, do you want to come and, and like trade that one in on the newest model? And here's why. The newest model's got this uh, charging station in the car that you don't have to plug anything in. It's got a bigger screen so you can see the backup camera. You should hear about the engine, and then he, you know, littered off a whole bunch of phrases about engines that I honestly don't understand. I think there was a 522 number in there somewhere, but that sounds like a lot. So we think, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, if there's a newer model, I, I want to have people who love money. That, that's, the way, that's the way they think about it. And on the, on, the, on the advertisements, it's always, there's a new, this is a revolutionary new product. And when that when that's said to us, we're like, oh, revolution. I mean, I don't want to miss out on the revolution. So we get the revolutionary new widget that makes our lives all better, except it doesn't. And then we try the next one, because a year later, they got a razor with 12 blades. And then we try that, and it doesn't make our life happier. And that's what the point that he's making in this verse. The one who loves money will never be satisfied with money. It's also, it's just futile, he says. It's that, that word hebel in, in Ecclesiastes. That's the word that means it's meaningless. It's futile. It's fleeting. It's like, you're not going to get what you expect out of it. It's like you're, you're a hamster running on a wheel chasing after the new updated thing and you never get it. The hamster thinks he's going to eventually get there, but he doesn't. The dog thinks he's going to get that car, but he doesn't. Verse 11, uh, when someone's prosperity increases, those who consume it also increase. 
So what does its owner gain except that he gets to see it with his eyes? Not only is, is wealth not fulfilling like you think it should be, but it also kind of, it draws the flies is what he's saying here. Those who consume it also increase. So when you get rich, uh, all of a sudden it's like this big massive light that goes off and you become, you know, all the moths show up. The, the father who was estranged from you all those years shows up at your doorstep because, you know, you struck it big in the lottery or you became a professional sports uh, player. You, you know, you're a football player, basketball player now, and he saw you on the draft and now he's at the front door and he's knocking and he says, oh, I'm so sorry. I just wanted to see you and, you know, reconcile. Your friends from the neighborhood all are your friend now. I mean, before they didn't have anything to do with you because they thought you were kind of a dweeb or whatever, but now, now they're your best pals. And the government now is really more interested in you. In the past, you used to submit tax, you know, tax information and they just kind of leave you alone. But now they're really interested because you have a lot, lot more. And that's what, that's what Kohelet is saying here. Is one of the dangers of wealth is first, it's not going to fulfill your, your, you know, what you expect it to, but it's also going to draw the flies. Like, it's going to pull people out of the woodwork. And, and what will end up happening, he says, is that, it, is that the owner gets to just see it with his eyes. He doesn't get to actually experience it because he's giving it away to everybody else who's come along. And so he now just sees numbers, but he looks around and thinks, man, I'm not, like, it's not, this is not quite what I thought it would be. I, I just, I don't experience the joy and stuff that I have, but these people seem to be enjoying it, I guess. In that sense, it's, it's futile. Again, I don't know how many times you've heard about, like, sports stars who become bankrupt. They, they actually, in rookie, in rookie camps these days, if you go and become a baseball player or a football player or basketball or hockey, they actually get all the rookies together in a rookie camp and they sit them down in front of like a financial advisor and the financial advisor says, oh, here's what's gonna happen. All these people are gonna come around you and wanna be in your entourage. And if you build a, bit, a big entourage, just expect yourself to be, you know, to have no money in 10 years. Right. And Kohelet is, is right in that one. When someone's prosperity increases, those who consume it also increase. Verse 12, the, the sleep of the laborer. So here's another reason that that having money is kind of hard. The sleep of the laborer is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the wealth of the rich will not allow him to sleep. Yeah, because preser preservation of wealth requires a lot of planning, a lot of care. It's not easy to get to get wealth, you have to often work very hard for it. You often have to plan out certain, you know, understand the markets, uh, figure out exactly how it's going to function. And then once you get it, you got to figure out how you're going to keep it and maybe multiply it and double it. Because you can't control the markets. You can't control the, the weather when, you, when you're a farmer. You can't control all of these other things. And so you're constantly on your toes. And the moment the market turns, you're thinking in your mind, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, man, how am I going to work this through? Or if you've had a down month, you think to yourself, I got a hundred employees. How am I going to pay all of them? Maybe I have to let go of some of them. And I, well, how am I going to make those decisions? And what are those conversations going to be like? Because I, I love those people. You can see all the things that would keep you up at night, right? But if you're a laborer, if you're somebody who just shows up at work, you you know, you get up in the morning, you show up at work, you clock in, or you just start your work. You do your work, you go home, 
you have a, a nice dinner or you have a simple dinner and then later in the evening, you know, you watch your shows and you go to bed and you're asleep within a couple minutes. The sleep of the laborer is pleasant, but the wealth of the rich will not allow him to sleep. So here is a misfortune, verse 12. Here is a misfortune on earth that, that I've seen. So he's basically saying here, okay, so let me give you a case study. Uh, you've done this with your kids. You, you sit them down and say, listen, uh, I know you're going in this direction, and so let me tell you a story about someone who is doing what you're doing. Or you sit them down just as a warning to them generally about life. Let me tell you about my friend Charlie. So here's Kohelet saying, let me tell you about my friend Charlie. Here's a misfortune on earth that I've seen. Wealth hoarded by its owner to his own misery. Well, what do you mean, wealth hoarded to his own misery? Okay, then the wealth was lost through bad luck. So he got a whole lot of stuff and then he lost it through bad luck. Maybe it was a bad, bad crops that year, you know, bad weather in that context is probably what's being referred to here, but it may be a bad investment, right? You invested in a company that went down big time. Uh, maybe you lost all your money in the stock market or you lost all your money. Maybe you were a gambler and you just ended up losing, losing all your money. So here's the sad statement. Wealth is hoarded by its owner to his own misery, and then that wealth was lost through, lost through bad luck. And although he fathered a son, he has nothing left to give him. And in that culture, that was like the goal of a father, is to pass on property, land, and a name to your boy, who could then pass it on to his boy, 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 so that your name would last a long time in the land. And so what you've done here, what we're describing here, is a guy who's failed in his singular purpose as a father, by hoarding the money and then he lost it. Verse 15, just as he came forth from his mother's womb, naked he will return as he came. And he will take nothing in his hand that he may carry away from his toil. This is another misfortune. Just as he came, so he will go. What did he gain from toiling for the wind? But he chased it tried to get them, what did he gain in, his, in the case study? What did he get? And the answer is nothing. All the work, all the energy put forward to, to gain the good life did not gain the good life. Surely, verse 17, he, he ate in darkness every day of his life and he suffered greatly with sickness and anger. You can, especially in that last phrase, you can, you can hear that he was so, he's frustrated. He's, he's bearing the marks of a fortune gained and lost. And in his old age, he's looking back, he's looking back in regret. And he's thinking through his mind all that time, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? What if I had done that? And Coel is basically saying, this is what happens to people who love money. All of this stuff, these are the dangers of wealth that we don't usually think about when we want to have all of it. We think we're going to have the good life, but then all of this stuff comes along with it and it doesn't fulfill. It's hevel. It's meaningless. It's, it's futile. Or to put it as clearly as I can, here's his point. Uh, striving after wealth isn't worth it. One, it's fleeting in that it can be quickly lost. And second, it's futile because even if I get it, I'll never make enough to make me feel what I thought it would make me feel. 
It's an old saying that uh, it goes like this. I don't know who said it first, but it's a great statement. Money is a great servant, but it's a terrible master. Money's a great servant, but it's a terrible master. The one who loves money has placed it in that master role. Oh, master, give me what I want if I meet up to your, to your particular standard. When I hear that master language, I, you know, my mind immediately goes to maybe the picture of, a, you know, I've heard stories about a father who is never satisfied with what their kids do. It doesn't matter what they do. They go to school and they get a, you know, a 96%. The father said, what, what about the other 4%? I usually tell jokes with my kids this way. That's the first way I respond to it. And I tell the joke because how ridiculous is that? to expect that. But some fathers, some parents, that's what they do. What's wrong? You can't get a hundred? Can you imagine a father who, who says to his kid, right, um, I'm going to give you this reward. I don't care what it is. A car, uh, you know, a lollipop. I don't care what it is. I'm going to give you this reward if you adequately do this job the way I think you ought to do, right? So you're going to clean the car, or you're going to get good grades, or you're going to do whatever. So I will give you this reward if you do this job of cleaning the car. So he goes outside, he cleans the car, the kid does, and he comes back in and says, Dad, I did it. And he walks outside, you know, while the father kind of examines the thing, and the father will invariably find something that is wrong. He said, ah, you missed a spot down here. But I'll give you another chance with your room. You clean your room, I'll give you the thing. Kid goes upstairs, cleans the room, father goes and he you know, wipes his finger along the top of the rail and realizes, no, that it's dirty. But I'll give you another chance if you want to clean my room. So in the end, what do, what do we call father? He's just manipulating the kid, isn't he? I mean, he's a terrible master. We call actually this, we probably call this abuse at some point. And the kid will grow up and he'll be just so angry. He'll either re reject it completely or he will constantly live his life trying to gain it, trying to gain it, trying to gain it, and always being let down because he cannot get what he's chasing. And that's what Kohelet is saying. It's like chasing the wind. You just, you just can't get it. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament actually, I think, picks up some of the language that Kohelet uses here. And here's what he says. He says, when he talks about the dangers of wealth, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he said, Now godliness combined with contentment brings great profit. For we have brought nothing into this world, and so we can, cannot take a single thing out either. But if we have food and shelter, we will be satisfied with that. Because those who long to be rich, they stumble into temptation and a trap and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. Some people in reaching for it have strayed from the faith and stabbed themselves with many pains. It's almost like he had just read Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So number one, wealth can be dangerous. That's Kohelet's argument. Second, wealth can also be delightful. So here's what he says in verses 18 to 20. So he's, he's now facing up to the, the, the issue Look, wealth is really, a, a, you know, it's, it's not going to deliver what you want. It, it's really dangerous. And so you can get the wrong idea then. Think, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, not be interested at all in the things of this life. I'm not going to be interested at all in any kind of money and stuff like that because it's all terrible. It's all going to lead me downhill. But then he says in verse 18, I, I have seen personally what is the only beneficial and appropriate course of action for people. 
to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all their hard work on earth during the few days of their life which God has given them, for this is their reward. To every man whom God has given wealth and possessions, he has also given him the ability to eat from them, to receive his reward and to find enjoyment in his toil. See, these things are the gift of God. For he does not think much about the fleeting days of his life because God keeps him preoccupied with the joy he derives from his activities. You notice all the positive statements about money here? Kohelet's answer to the futility of loving wealth is this. Wealth won't satisfy us like we want, but it's a wonderful gift from God that he wants us to enjoy. I'll say it again. Wealth will not satisfy us like we want. But it is a wonderful gift from God that he wants us to enjoy. That's why he gives it. He gives us the wealth and, according to this passage, the ability to enjoy it. And that is our reward. That is the gift of God to us as we live our lives under the heavens. This is a repetition of Kohelet's kind of main point when it comes to looking at your life and how you ought to live in light of the futility of the world around us. So you find other passages that are very similar to this. I just want to show you how consistent this testimony is because it's really what we want you to get in this study of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 and 25, there is nothing better for people than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their work. I also perceive that this ability to find enjoyment comes from God. For no one can eat and drink or experience joy apart from him. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 12 and 13, I've concluded that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to enjoy themselves as long as they live. And also that everyone should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil, for these things are a gift from God. You hear it? Don't, don't focus so much on the destination of what you think wealth is going to give you if you get there, because it won't. It'll always be a letdown. But focus instead on the process of getting there and focus, sorry, not getting there, but focus instead on the process of, of your life and all the good things that the wealth has brought to you, because those are all God's gifts to you that he wants you to enjoy. He doesn't hate wealth. He gives it. He gives the ability to enjoy it because he loves us, even in our lives under the heavens. So I was thinking about maybe a, a good way to illustrate this, and so uh, I'll try this one and see if it, if it helps. I, my wife likes to ask me to go hiking. My son came back from Austria as well, and he, he uh, against my prayers, has gained a joy in hiking. I say against my prayers because I don't like hiking. I don't like hiking largely because everyone tells me that, oh, yeah, it's going to be uphill, you're going to sweat a lot, probably slip and maybe die, but when you get to the top of the trail and you're dripping with all that sweat and you look out at the horizon, you will say, wow, that was worth it. But my experience is that every time I've gone on a hike and I said, okay, fine, yeah, let's do it. The, the experience, or sorry, the, the, the view at the end, that is going to be the thing that really is the payoff. Every time I've done it, you know, I go through all of this trial and difficulty and I get to the top, I complain all the way, I get to the top, 
And then we stand there and we look out at this view and I'm thinking to myself, man, I, I think I probably could have seen this on Apple TV and uh, been eating chips on my couch at the same time. Like it's never worth it from my point of view. It's never worth it. Some of you are thinking, of course it is. No, it's not. Stop it. Don't lie to yourselves. So what do you do? Why should you hike then, Jeff? Like what? I do hike. I do go with my wife. Why are you doing it? Well, hiking got way better for me when I took my eyes off what the destination was going to be. Yeah, we're going to hike up to this peak and we're going to look out. Yeah, fine, it's going to be a letdown. But what's not a letdown is what you see along the way. As soon as I took my eyes off of what I thought the hike was going to promise me and instead just enjoyed the hike for what it was, you know, a, a walk in the woods that makes me sweat, I, it, it became kind of alive to me. And I started to enjoy it. I started to realize it put in its proper place. Hiking can be an enjoyable activity. So can root canals. No, I'm kidding. Hiking can be a lovely activity. So, so the point that I'm making here is so too is it with life under the heavens. How do, how do you live if the destination, right, of wealth is, is going to be futile it's going to be a view that is letting you down. How then you, do you live in this life? And the answer is you enjoy the joys along the way. And I think that's what, that's what Kohelet is saying. The view from the top of our work and wealth is a letdown, but the God-given joys that we have while gaining them are quite lovely. So don't worry about the end necessarily of, and think that it's all going to provide for you everything you want, because it won't but enjoy what it's giving you in the, in the time being. There's this guy named Zach Eswine, and I'll finish with this. Um, this guy named Zach Eswine, who, um, he wrote a great book called Recovering Eden, which is, uh, is about the book of Ecclesiastes and kind of its main point. Um, in it, he starts talking about how different kinds of people respond to, to death. And he lists out four or five different ways that different groups of people respond to death in this life. And he's, his big argument is the book of Ecclesiastes is basically about how people respond to the knowledge that they're going to die, to the knowledge that life has an end point. Life on this earth under the heavens has an end point. So I want to take up that, that thought with you for just a second. How do different kinds of people respond to the idea that we live under the heavens in this life? It's imperfect. It's up and down. Things don't always come out like it seems and that we are all going to die. Well, um, three popular approaches to that knowledge are first the secularist, you know, the person who doesn't believe that there is necessarily a God or anything non-physical in the world. What they believe is that when you die, you die and you rot in the ground and that you, see, you cease to be because your physical being ceases to be, so do you cease to be. Death is the end. This life is all we have. So how should you then live? Well, man, you just got to seek as many whooshes, as many experiences and excitements that you possibly can. And you live your life for the moment-to-moment -moment whooshes. Which sounds a little bit like Kohelet. But a secularist is going to say, no, no, no. You have to put all of your joy in that because it's the only joys that you have. There's no God. There's no heaven. There's no better world. So 
you have to find the whooshes. And the way you find the whooshes is you get as much money as you can to have the whooshes and you get as much insurance as you can so you can avoid the bad sides of life. But this whole approach to living is always letting people down. Because the whooshes themselves are disappointing, aren't they? I go to the football game and they're gonna win, but they happen to be the Seahawks. The Canucks are gonna do it this year. Whoosh. And it's gone in the first three games. Oh, let's go. Oh, we, I just can't wait till we go on our trip to Hawaii. And then you get sick on the plane. That's life. It's got ups, it's got downs, it's got unfulfilled expectations. And the secularist's best solution is just to find as many of those as you can and try to ignore the letdown, I guess. Spend more money on, on a better flight. Support a better team. I don't know. That's it. They're always let down. So that's the secularist. So what about people kind of who are more Christian but believe in the prosperity gospel, uh, the, the belief that death leads to heaven, but you can have a lot of heaven here and now. In fact, uh, you can have your best life now. And if you just say the right things into the world, if you declare and decree things into the world, you will get those things back. You have to speak them into existence. You have to make sure you're constantly, you know, following the rules, the law of attraction, as some people in that prosperity movement say, and you keep speaking those things out and eventually it'll come back to you. So if you, if don't say you have cancer because that will bring it back to you. Say that I'm well and I'm good and I'm happy and all these things. And you will eventually get all of these things. This is the secret that God has for us. The problem, of course, is that this whole way of thinking ignores reality, doesn't it? Because life's not like that. And you do get sick. And cancer's a thing. And COVID does come and affect our family members. And, and, and. Car accidents happen. We lose our money. And if you hold this viewpoint, you can't speak about it because if you end up owning the idea that cancer is in your body, you're actually apparently giving it more power and reinforcing by the law of attraction that it'll continue to grow. So you can't talk about it. You have to be a person of faith. And because of that, you have to quietly be let down or simply feel guilty by the presence of bad stuff in your life. Well, the, the, the system's not working. It must be either the system's fault, but it can't be the system's fault. It can't be the, the, the prosperity gospel teaching's fault. It's got to be my fault. Where have I failed in speaking out the right things? Where have I failed in doing the right things? Where have I failed? And so your life is filled with disappointment and frustration and sadness. And then you have kind of the common, what I would consider the common Christian approach to to the knowledge that we're going to die and how should we then live in this life here now, we have the kind of the escapist. You know, it's represented in, in great songs that we love to sing, like turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and, and grace. That's the goal here and now. It's because there's a heaven, don't think about the stuff here. Think about the he Think about heaven. And this stuff here then just isn't important anymore. You can just do away with it. Spend your time in prayer meetings. Don't eat pizza. Spend your time in, in, in church holy activities, but don't mingle with the games of life. 
Don't enjoy a good steak. You don't need a steak. You can just have, you know, meatloaf. Because that stuff doesn't matter. It's sort of the monkish way of, of living. Many of us actually hold this viewpoint. The problem is, we don't really get Kohelet because when he says stuff like, wait a minute, God is having saying that we should enjoy things as long as we live, and then we read Kohelet by saying, well, he must be talking about life apart from, from God. Well, no, he's talking about life. Here and now, in this, in this world, and people who are kind of the escapists, they miss the genuine joy of the physical gifts God gives, that we are physical beings and God has given us physical gifts in this world and life that we might enjoy them. So Kohelet, he comes and he gives a fourth way. <laughs> and here's his fourth way. Life is filled with ups and downs and a lot of futility. So don't set your hope in the stuff of this life, but see the stuff of this life as a lovely gift of God on your way to a world where all your expectations will ultimately be fulfilled. We'll say that again. Life is filled with ups and downs and a lot of futility, so just don't set your hope in the stuff of this life, but see it as a lovely gift of God on your way to a world where all your expectations will ultimately be fulfilled. Love God the most. Love his heaven, his world that we're headed to the most. Realize that this life is filled with ups and downs and difficulty, but enjoy the walk along the way. Enjoy the things in their proper place. Zach Eswine, when he summarizes the point of Ecclesiastes, he said, look, death has pointed its headlights at us and started its engine. Therefore, we must learn from God how to enjoy what he has given to us, knowing that none of it can save or satisfy us. Trying to turn a grapefruit into a baseball doesn't dismiss the value of the grapefruit, but it really does make for a disappointing baseball game. If we want to enjoy the fruit's value, we have to treat it according to the use God gave it and resist trying to use it for things that it was not made for. A grapefruit can't give us the thrill of a home run, but it can make a breakfast pleasant. Look, our money, our work, our food, the pleasures of this world, they're grapefruits. And grapefruits are great. They're tasty. But don't expect them to be baseballs. Or to put it another way, Jesus will truly fulfill our expectations, so don't load wealth with the expectation that only Jesus can fulfill. Work and wealth are horrible masters but they are great servants if you enjoy them in their proper place. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the book of Ecclesiastes and the wisdom of Kohelet. The reality that he's willing to face that many of us, Father, just don't want to see. But we know it's there, Lord. We experience it all. So help us to respond to that experience with a full joy and expectation that you alone are worth our worship. And all the stuff of this life, Father, our lovely gifts along the way. Help us to look around ourselves and see what you've given 
And help us today even, Father, to enjoy. To enjoy what you've given and to love you because of it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.